Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
Tom, which dish of which Top Chef alum are you ordering at the home dinner the night before the finale? <laughs> I think Richard Blaze did a pile of beef with bone marrow. I mean, that is the most indulgent thing I can think of. So I'm going to go with the pile of beef with bone marrow by Richard Blaze. You know, I am a Melissa Shanghai's sea bass man myself but all four dishes looked incredible <laughs> as the best dinner ever and this is pack your knives i'm kevin arnovitz and i'm tom haberstrow tom the finale is upon us the season 18 finale we have three contestants gabe shota and don And as we know, the parameters pretty open for a finale. These folks are going to create a four-course meal. That's where we stand. There's a lot of time. They get three hours the first day, six hours the second day. The world is their oyster. They select a sous chef from the previous three chefs who were eliminated. Right. And first of all, I mean, Dawn looks freezing out there. Can we get her a jacket, please? I mean, she's standing out there in the cold, and I think Gabe's wearing like this hoodie, and Shota's wearing a jacket, or maybe the other way around. Now, Shota's in a t-shirt because like he's from Seattle, and like cold, <laughs> dreary weather, people just act like it actually isn't happening. That's the funniest thing about going to like Portland and Seattle in the winter is like it's raining, and people are just kind of hanging out, talking outside, and yeah. they're completely immune to the conditions. Poor Don, who's from Texas, Houston, Texas there, and Gabe, who's Austin, Texas, they're just like free. But Don is shivering and someone mentions all oh, the scenery and she's like, yeah, it's beautiful, breathtaking. Can we get the show moving, please? I am freezing out here. So they got to do this draft as we do every time during the finale. We get a reunion of sorts of Top Chef eliminated chefs. And so here we have Jamie, Byron and Maria. They come out and Don gets to go first. Kevin, Don getting to go first. Typically in these drafts, it's kind of the kiss of death is that getting the first draw is not necessarily an advantage. Statistically, that is not something you want. For whatever reason, you're just, you clam up and you pick someone that maybe is a little, you know, getting kind of cute with the pick. But here, Don gets the first pick. Were you surprised with her choice of going with Jamie? I'm back, bitches! <laughs> not necessarily. It's hard to kind of know because it's a very specific skill. It's prep, it's sublimation of ego, it's just being dutiful, being well-organized. You know, it was funny. I don't think either of us necessarily last season would have said, not having worked in a kitchen with these folks, hey, Brian Malarkey's the, the sous chef of all sous chefs. Right. And yet to these contestants, it was just completely evident, right? Like Malarkey was going to be the choice as sous chef, right? He played the heel, he's this entrepreneur, and yet, it was just a natural for so it's it's hard to know without having been in the kitchen. It's hard to know who's sort of just a great second banana. Yeah, and I guess it's just do you get along with Jamie? Don chooses Jamie. Shoda picks second. He goes with Byron, and Gabe gets Maria. Which a little bit of foreshadowing here. It seemed like the best option for Gabe considering their Mexican cuisine strengths here. So Don goes with Jamie and. From the get-go, it kind of seems like the same issues for Don keep creeping up where 
it takes a little bit. She even admits it. Dawn is like having a slow development process with her conceiving of her dish. And a lot of times Jamie's kind of pushing back and being like, do you think we're going to have enough time or do you think that's a little much here? Yeah. You know, it's funny because you would think that if you are getting down to the final seven, six, five, if I was a chef on the show, I'd already be thinking about my four course meal. I probably would be thinking about it before I even got on the plane. I'm not prescribing this because I think what happens over the course of the competition is you learn certain things about yourself. The time constraints allow for this and not that. What's going to be available seasonally? And you know what have the chefs liked of yours the most, I imagine, would factor into that. But I, I was surprised at the improvisational nature of the menu building with everybody except for Gabe. Gabe struck me as a guy who came in with some very specific ideas about what he wanted to do. Like he was going to have a wild first course that paid tribute to it, to a classic dish that you might not otherwise see on a menu. He was going to do some kind of raw dish, an agua chile or a ceviche, whatever it is, right? He was clearly going to have an entree of protein with his mole. And, And I think that he was the guy of the three that seemed Like he arrived at the finale with a very specific plan. Correct me if I'm wrong. For this season, because they're in the house, they're not doing like a a break before their finale. Right, where they go home for a month and they come back. Yeah, I got the sense that was true, yeah. Dawn, I guess before she goes on the show, she might have done some homework and said, all right, if I get to the finale, I've got to just come up with some dishes that I know I can nail that I know if I'm going to do a three course, because every season they have the same thing. It's like a progressive menu, four course, three course, whatever it is, and I'm going to map it out. And of course, like you said, when you're in a new location, you don't necessarily know what kind of ingredients you're going to be working with. But I'm with you. Gabe seemed to have the most clarity and preparation in the progression. And it wasn't like Shoda. I was surprised by Shoda that second dish seemed to be his downfall because he originally was going to have it like protein for it, at least have more octopus in there and then edited it back and had it more focused on the veggies. And that seemed to be not his fatal flaw because there was another issue in his later dish, but he didn't seem to have it fully formed until he got in the weeds. How do we want to do this? Do we want to go by chef or do we want to go by course? Cause I think you're bringing up some fascinating choices and and decisions and it was a really interesting finale because i don't think we've watched the show where the judges were like this is literally the best meal we've ever had on the show i feel like i've seen that a number of times and perhaps as the show evolves the chefs get better and better but they didn't say that this time no i mean there were some nice dishes but but i don't even know that there was more than a couple of knockouts which was surprising because, again, the show has gotten – and I think Gail mentioned this on our podcast. It's gotten much more selective, right? We don't have the line cook from wherever. We are now having chefs that arrive with credentials and awards and their own restaurants. And it seemed like a somewhat underwhelming performance yeah. by the group collectively. Not that there weren't some real dishes that sang – but this seemed, I don't want to say disappointing, but in comparison to previous finales, there was less fanfare. There was less euphoria at the judges' table. So, Kevin, let's go course by course here because I love the way we grade 
like a boxing match. We grade each round and see who wins the round, so to speak. So let's go course one. Shota comes out with the sashimi three ways and just visually absolutely stunning what he does with this dish, Kevin. This is Shota being Shota. It is a delicate, beautiful jewel box of a plate, right? These <laughs> yeah. three stones, these emeralds, these, like, it just, it's gorgeous. Sashimi is delicious, right? And, and you treat it the right way. Those are some of the best bites in the world. And he plays to his strengths um, and it serves him really well. Those look just fantastic. And the little gold chip in there too was a nice touch. Mm, the flakes. Yeah. It's just visually beautiful. I think it was like a cured salmon. So it wasn't just he took this flesh and put it on the rice doing sashimi. He took care in each of those proteins that he put on the plate. Gabe goes with the pig head, pibil, head cheese with three sauces. I've had pig head before. Actually, the restaurant in Cleveland, I forget the name of it. Oh, yeah. What is that place? And it's totally grossed out the rest of the people at the restaurant when it wheels out to the table. But it's still a little alarming when I think it was Maria pulls the pig head out of the pot after boiling the pig head out of the pot. And it's just this massive massive animal head pulling out of a pot it's still a little like it takes me back a little bit when i when i see that greenhouse tavern in cleveland which closed sadly oh that was one of the best meals you can get in cleveland so that's too bad it was a really great place i think the matchup with maria where maria totally gets what he's going for here was a really fortunate happenstance that maria was the third chef for gabe in this it seemed random but i I would probably argue that if Gabe had the number one pick, he picked Maria. And it shows in this dish where it's just like, yeah, this is a very authentic Mexican dish that they put together here. So head cheese, of course, is the least appealing name for any food on the planet, right? Um, but it's basically a terrine made from you know the meat of, of the head. Uh, he does something really interesting, and it's a choice that might have – I think docked him a little bit for some from some of the judges, which is once he has the terrine, you know, he breads it in masa and then they fry it. Um, I, I think in an effort to get you know some real crisp, uh, but I, I think a couple of the servings for some of the judges didn't get that crispiness. So you know, it's kind of one of those things when you fry something. If you get that crispiness, oh, you're in good shape. If you don't, it can be a little soggy. Um, it can be oily. It, it does. So it looks like he did really well. They loved his sauces, and and I think, as as Gail said earlier, he is sort of the saucier of the season. Um, there is something to be said for, you know, um. Our buddy Jen was also kind of a, a, a big saucier, and it's just a real nice thing, right? You have a dish like that. You have the primary component, and it can really kind of round you up in terms of grade when you just have those gorgeous sauces, and he clearly just nailed those. Yeah, and they're three different colored sauces, texture and flavors, and so it's not just he's giving you a sauce. It's He's flexing a little bit and saying, I'm going to do not one, not two, but three different sauces with this dish. Um, so I thought that was a well-conceived dish. The execution could have been better, like you said, with the frying of the head cheese. This menu is really coming to me slowly. But just as in my athletic career, I would train four years to be on the Olympic team and compete for only a few seconds. This is the meal of my lifetime. I'm going to give the judges everything I have. Now, Dawn, with her third course, she does a lamb tartare with beef tendon 
and a honey bread, Kevin. A honey bread. Wow, this dish, man. I, when I heard it, I was so excited. Lamb kitfo. So kitfo is a great Ethiopian dish. It is. I mean, you and I are both tartar fans, and you know, you mix it with the Ethiopian spice butter. It infuses the meat with this spice and this viscosity, butteriness. And it is such a great dish. Um, I got to have it a bunch of times in Ethiopia. It's some spicy stuff. I mean, you have to kind of, I had to mild it down for myself. Um, but she, you know, she's going to do this. She assembles it on this beautiful, like this bone marrow. Um, I think some cherry tomatoes. There's this beef tendon chip, one of those beautiful puffs and the honey bread in the banana leaf, I think. Um, it was sort of a tour de force, except what, Tom? This is the one where they didn't get all of the different elements to the plate, right, Kevin? <laughs> this happens all the time with Don. Kevin, what are we going to do with this? Like, It seemed like a perfect dish. It, like, All the elements were great. And then you have Richard say, sitting there and saying, wait a minute, I didn't get two of the elements on my plate. Don, we love you. Got to figure this out. I was under the impression that Okay, finally, there is a challenge, a finale, nine collective hours of cooking time where her biggest weakness, which is time management, would be nullified. There isn't an issue here. No. Because she's got nine hours for four dishes. She's got a sous chef. And yet it happens again. I don't know if it cost her the title. It's hard to say how you grade them out. Had she been able to kind of win the round. I don't know. Shota Sashimi was pretty, pretty good. But I don't know that we've ever seen a chef testant in in this situation where just a persistent problem plaguing you from the literally the first challenge to the last. I graded this one. Shota wins this round. He gets one point for me. I just did it first, second, and third place. Gabe at second place and third I gave Dawn because of the DQ of missing two elements on the plate. Although I think if she got those elements on the plate, I think I'd move her up to the second position over Gabe. What do you think about that? It's hard to kind of come up with an arbitrary scoring system, right? Like, you know, I would maybe go four to one and just because the, the winner gets, should, should, should be amplified. But yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like that. I mean, Shota turned in a perfect dish, a dish that was beautifully representative of his work, which I think is something that the chefs really want. I mean, they're still looking for kind of journey. They're still looking for a through line for the meal. And he starts it exactly at the, the, the embarking point that you would expect him to start. And I think, as you said, Dawn finishes last by virtue of the fact that she didn't get the elements on the plate. I, I think it might have been a better dish than Gabe's. I mean, obviously, we haven't tasted it, but she clearly comes in last because she cannot get items on the plate. Kevin? We forgot to talk about the night before meal. I know we said it at the top of the episode, but now that we've done the first course, we talk about Dawn and her issues with the plating or getting everything down on the plate. Let's take a little break here and talk about the night before when they walk back into the house and they see like the seven or six alumni standing there. They all just have this face of fright. Oh, shoot. Chefs, please. All the all-stars here? What in the world is happening? Our guy, Dale Talday, comes out and says... Couldn't make it that easy, right? You three have to choose one of us to cook against, and the loser will be going home. Psych! Psych! <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, later. <laughs> that was the worst joke ever. Kevin, man, I fell for it too. I, I totally fell for it. I'm also very gullible about stuff like that. But <laughs> meanwhile, the upside is, I, I mean, I don't know that there are any, there's any restaurant in the world I would choose over a night where Gregory Dale, Blaze, and Melissa cook family style for me and two friends. Like I don't, I don't think there is a restaurant in the world. Not that place in Copenhagen. Not any of my favorite places here. I don't think there is a restaurant I would go to over that meal. There were some really cool moments in this little segment here when they're cooking at the the dinner with the alumni. One of which is Nina's advice to Don. How do you guys feel? You know, I'm I'm running things through my head. You know, you know how it is. Don, scale it back. Don't overthink adding that extra garnish. Like, is it does it need it or is it just for color? Kevin. Did you find this moment just totally jump off the screen for you? Oh, totally, because there was so much subtext. I mean, Nina gives her this pep talk, some good tough love, kind of telling her not to defeat her worst instincts. And and and, and what was Don's response? Chef, I hear you. <laughs> Which, if subtitled, would have said what, given her tone? Fuck off. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was, it was a beautiful kind of candid moment and what has otherwise become a love fest of a show by the way I, just briefly maybe a different conversation yeah i was i was texting with a, a good friend of mine who loves the show um this this and it also a, a person i also regard as a creative genius very successful writer um nationally and you know he brought up the point and i kind of alluded to it a little bit in the past that top chef has become top friend and that one of the things he misses a little bit about the show is that it's a competition show. Now, we were talking specifically about the previous week where no one gets kicked off. There is a point where the goodwill of Top Chef and the community it has built, it is a wonderful community. But in exchange, the show has lost a little bit of edge. There is There hasn't been a villain in two or three. I mean, you could argue malarkey a little bit, but Padma couldn't even keep a straight face over malarkey's like heelness. <laughs> it wasn't really, he wasn't really a villain. I mean, um, he may have been a little bit of an irritant, but that was it. And it was also self-defined. But, you know, my friend's complaint was is that we have become top chef. He actually interestingly had um, – had been watching Top Chef Canada, where he'd been spending some time. And there's this clip of, of, of you know, one of the sort of, out, you know, the outtakes, not the outtakes, the, uh, you know, the interviews where one of the contestants says, you know what, this isn't Top BFF. And it was kind of mm. realizing when I watched it, I hadn't seen anything like that on Mothership Top Chef here in the States. I, 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 I agree with my friend. I, I love the communal spirit. I love that these chefs are all buddy-buddy. It's a warm feeling. And, you know, Gail, in our discussion with her, suggests that it was it's one of the reasons the show's so successful is they don't play the sort of, you know, Richard from Survivor season one thing, right? Like, they don't do that. And I am, though, at the point where it was nice to see a little conflict. And I'm not saying I want to see season 19 – chef testants knocking each other over the head with metal chairs yeah, or anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't, I don't need to see that, but I do miss a little 
bus throwing, if you will. Like I, like, I wouldn't mind getting to a judge's table, Tom, and having a little bit like, no, it's her fault. No, it's his fault. We've seen the opposite. I think the show's lost a little bit about that. I think we've gone too far the other way. Right, right. And there have been moments where it's teetered towards that with the judge's table is like, actually, you know, Jamie was the one who prepared my, my, uh, prepared this part of the dish and it almost it almost it tiptoed to that that breaking point of like oh we're gonna we're gonna see some 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 hands fly here we didn't get that what we did get was i think it's important to note nina was the one who gave that tough love kind of conflict there with dawn and it wasn't a fellow chef testant um to give her that kind of advice like hey like enough with the garnish like we she already said it in the previous episode, and now she hammers it home again. And Dawn, it is her Achilles heel. It like Nina was right. Is that focus, uh, focus, focus on your on your ingredients. Don't overdo it. And she overdoes it on that plate. Um, and so Nina, uh, I, I love that she she had that moment with Dawn. And Dawn actually remember Gabriel, not Gabe, but Gabriel Pescuzzi from earlier when he criticized Dawn's uh, grilling of the meat. Remember that from the earlier episode or one of the earliest episodes? And that was like, Kevin, it was like the only other time I can remember that there was kind of this conflict of like, hey, don't tell me what to do. Like, I know my shit. Other than Dawn kind of being completely bemused that Jamie would sauce the crispy side of a fish oh yeah in the very first of you know which is ironic because you know dawn chose jamie as her sous chef which is interesting but yeah i, I mean it's a general much much larger conversation about the show is that you know generally speaking competition reality shows play up conflict and certainly top chef had plenty of that in the early and even middle seasons but clearly the show has reached a confidence level where they feel like they don't have to do that I'm missing a little bit of it. I, I just at a certain point, the love fest is great. It's warm. I, I still look. I mean, this is still the best competition show on television. But I, I wouldn't mind in future seasons for there to be a little static. It is getting precious. I, I think to some degree. Now that we're out of the house, there. Let's go back to the second course here. So Shoda, after Dawn forgets two elements on the dish. Not heeding the advice from Nina. Going into this, I thought maybe Dawn would just fall apart here. And if you're a Shota or a Gabe, someone, the defender in front of you just stumbled. And now you have a clear lane to the basket. For Shota and Gabe, it seems like Dawn's uh, issue in the front might have opened up this, this opportunity for them to just run away with this thing. So in course two, Shota. This seems to be one of uh, one of the more surprising things is that Shoda didn't have the conviction with this dish and decided to do uh, an octopus karaji with water spinach and burdock root that turned out to be he shifted a little bit to be more veggie focused, which the judges loved the veggies. There was some complaint about the burdock root being a little bitter. Yeah, there was discussion about you're right. You're right. But I think it's to your point. One of the reasons is it might by virtue of the fact that the vegetable was the highlight. There's a reason you don't get like burdock root as a like as the main ingredient in, in a lot of dishes, right? Other than maybe in a you know Japanese country cooking, there might be a little dish there, but it's it's right. It, it's probably because of, of that. I mean, you you want to accentuate the protein. Um, I mean, we're going to talk more about this in the third course. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? 
It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is one of Shota's just absolutely confusing errors. I, he did a, in my opinion, a really awful job of, of, of menu designing, specifically in, in the second and third, which frankly are your big ticket items. You know, it was very confusing. It's an oily side dish. Melissa said it felt like a, a veggie side dish. And when you're coming on the final finale, your final t- four dishes that you're making, and one of them feels like a veggie side that's never a good sign. Not to mention the fact that this is a man who has made a living just cooking the best karage. That's sort of Japanese style, you know, fried stuff. And why not highlight that technique, especially with octopus? It was strange. And we'll talk more about his third course, but it didn't represent Shota's best instincts. And his instincts are so good. It was such a bizarre choice for me. Yeah. And then on the other hand, Gabe comes in with this like, uh, this agua chile refined. I think um, I think Gail called it. It it felt it was like poetry on a plate. Uh, so Kevin, that that dish, I mean, that looks so good. It seemed to be the the favorite dish of the night. It, it was like other than that, and like, I think Don's third looked to be the dish of the night. I mean, he does a scallop with um, tapache, which you, I don't completely understand what tapache is, but I, my my sense is it's kind of a, a Mexican kombucha. Yeah. So lovely. By the way, I'm going to go on another tangent. I took another page from Kelsey last night. Um, I had company over and I did a scallop crudo with a watermelon sake togarashi 
kind of water. Wait, you did the one the one where they they were all masked at the Kentucky season. Kelsey Barnett. This is the one where they did the cocktail. Yeah, I think so. Remember, so it's a variation of Kelsey. Kelsey did a scallop crudeau with, um, I believe, cherry water in fennel. What I did was I did watermelon water with sake in togarashi. I didn't want to use fennel. And I put it in a little spoon. So it was this lovely pink water with the raw scallop. And then I topped it with chopped shiso. Oh, and I got to say, like, like, first of all, I, I just will always be indebted to Kelsey because like when I saw that, that scallop with the cherry water, I like that was going to be, I, I'm, that's the dish I'm going to do. I mean, I, we, you and I both love like kind of crudos. We love scallops. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love summer fruits. Um, but last night I said, what if I did it with watermelon and I put some heat with the togarashi. So anyway, oh, that sounds. I awesome. digress, but I just wanted to thank Kelsey again. There's nothing more pleasant than being inspired by top chef chefs going into your own kitchen, you know, in putting your own spin on their recipes. It's just like, it, it's just a happy moment. And, and my guests loved it. And I, I, this is wonderful. So anyway, now I'm hungry, Kevin, let us get back to the, to Gabe's scallop and uh, agua chile, which was the dish of the night. Yeah, it, it really did seem like that. And so he comes in, that's his second dish. Then Ton comes in with this green gumbo with, uh, with Carolina gold rice fritter and, Man, anytime you bring in Carolina gold rice, my 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 ears perk up a little bit. Um, this looked like it should have been a knockout, and it didn't land. Particularly because the seaf either either there's too much seafood or the seafood wasn't cooked properly. But Tom Colicchio had a real tough time with this one. Green gumbo is a creation of Leah Chase, uh, who was a Creole chef um, in New Orleans, and just just one of the great legends of New Orleans cooking. Apparently, she absolutely nails it, and the hush puppy that accompanied it was great. But as you said, the complaint from Tom seemed to be the seafood wasn't really integrated into the plate, that it just was sort of standalone. It, it, it looked like an additive rather than a true element and component of the dish. So so that was the, um, that was the complaint, though. Uh, I mean, the herb gumbo was – I think pretty much loved by everybody. And if I'm going to get a complaint about a green gum seafood gumbo that the seafood didn't really feel like it was part of the dish, I'm okay with that. Like that's that seems like nitpicking to me. Like it's a it was a successful dish. Um, and for me, this is how I scored it. Uh, Gabe wins this one. Don at second, and then Shoda comes in third here with his uh, uh, his his veggie side dish. That seems like it was a pretty no-brainer there. And the order was pretty well-defined. Um, Gabe, clear winner. Shota kind of seemed to have the biggest misstep. So we move on to the – I mean, it was essentially the entree. Yep. And you could argue, Tom, that the third course of the finale meal is the most important dish in an entire Top Chef season. This is it, Right. You can play around with crudos and soups and gumbos. You got dessert later, which is always, I mean, it's nice, but I mean, let's face it. It's something they do grudgingly. I think most chefs on that show, but this is the highlight. This is the main event of the main event. This is the dish, Tom, that should define your body of work on Top Chef. It should be representative. It should be creative. It should be inspired. It is the dish that you go live and die with. It is the dish. <laughs> so I'm always curious about what they're going to choose. We've watched these chefs for the better part of four months. We know their strengths. You would 
think to work your strengths. Uh, and what I'm about to say, Tom, uh, uh, is uh, uh, I have never been more confused and disappointed in a chef than Shota cooking Japanese curry, which looked delicious. Beef tongue curry. I mean, I'm sure it is delicious with a mound of rice next to it. This is a man who is one of the most refined, technically advanced chefs that have come through that kitchen, Tom, in several seasons. His presentation is artful, as anybody's we've seen in recent seasons. And what he gives these chefs at the tasting menu, refined (laughs) meal of the season, is curry and sauce with a mound of rice. There's no technicality really applied. I mean, look, nailing the protein and making the tongue tender and braised, I'm not saying it's not skilled. But as Melissa rightly said, it looked like a staff meal. You know what the staff meal is? When she said that, Kevin, I gasped because that was a direct hit. That was like, boom, that is a crushing blow. When Edward Lee was starting out saying, Shoda's dish kind of got me a little emotional. To see something that kids would make fun of me at school for eating, to now see this on top chef, to me is a very special moment. And I absolutely love this dish. Having said that, The rice was definitely a little crunchy. He did a great job making a true version of it, but I did feel it's a a little staff meal-y. Your speech was a lot like your parents being like, Kevin, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. And it seems like they were too. Melissa's not exactly, like she's not Richard Blake. She's not throwing zingers. I mean, she is a a complimentary chef. She doesn't take, you know, she'll give constructive criticisms, but she rarely does anything with that sort of characterization. And she was right. And I, I just feel like you present food as beautifully as any chef. It is one of your great assets I think there is a time and place, and, and to, I am sensitive and, and, and moved by what Ed Lee said, and, and he is right. But in 18 weeks, Tom, there is, or 14 weeks, there is plenty of time. There are challenges that are like, cook from your heart, take something from your background, pay tribute to your family. This is not that moment. I know he got it from his mom once a week. I think that is a lovely story. Um, and I'm not, I don't say that uh, flippantly. I think they're wonderful moments. One of the things about Top Chef that is so great is they give you opportunities over the course of the 14 weeks to express yourself, to take something from your past, to convey a, a strong emotional tie you have with family and cuisine. There are opportunities to do that. This is not the opportunity. And this chef, who is as talented as anyone we've seen, come through that kitchen door. Decided to do curry gravy and a mound of rice that wasn't even freaking cooked well. It is one of the biggest bricks in a Top (laughs) Chef finale that I have seen. This is the man I traded what? I traded, I did what, three pick swaps, Tom? Great curry? Curry? It's a staff meal. There's no technical, like, it's absolutely outrageous. 
staff meal is what I guess that the chef makes for the group, just like a high volume meal that you can like make. A one in- pot meal kind. Yeah, you know, like I'm going to give. I want tweezers. I want tweezers. <laughs> I give me some of that braised daikon broth. Like, yeah, give me that- I want colors that sing. Like you're an artist. I don't say this to insult Shota. It is so far beneath him. I, I, I'm just, I am floored, Tom. I know, and, and it was. I turned so quick. I mean, he better not freaking win, is what I was saying. Kevin, he he didn't. Okay, he didn't. He didn't. I'm sorry. I got. I just. I am so disappointed. Hey, if you picked him second, I don't think you're going on such an epic rant like that. So I I feel that this was a this was a letting you down moment where you're riding Shota the the wave of Shota. Shota comes in with two wins in a row coming into the finale. Comes in with a first course that was perfect. And who doesn't love Toro, the fatty tuna uh, sashimi? Like, as far I Kevin, I was ready to hang it up. I was ready to turn off my TV and say, I already know who's winning this thing. Shota is running away. First course, the three-piece mm-hmm. sashimi with the Toro and the cured salmon. I was like, oh, he is going to run away with this thing. And then two absolute air balls here, course two and course three. I got to give Vince Mancini a shout out here. He's He does the Top Chef Power Rank. He's been on this podcast before. He does a great job at Up Rocks doing the, the Top Chef Power Rankings. He did an interview with with Tom Colicchio um, this week that I thought was really interesting. Is um, Tom Colicchio was asked by Vince, hey, why don't you do bl- a blind taste test? Like wh- earlier this season, y'all did a blind taste test at Judge's Table. You didn't know who made the dish and you just graded the dish free of your biases or who cooked the dish. And then like for the rest of the season, you know who cooks what dish and it might color your perception or your evaluation of that dish if you know the chef. And Top Colicchio said something really interesting. He said, look, I think part of the show is directing the audience because they're not eating the dishes. It's hard for the audience to keep track of what was what. And so for you to not have a, na- a chef's name attached to a dish, you're gonna just going to get confused. Like, oh, it was the tuna dish or the the rice dish or the, the, the beef tongue. Like for the show's direction is attaching the chef to the plate is so important to understanding the, the traffic of the show. That would be very hard to follow if you didn't put a name to a dish. So that's one reason. But the second one is exactly what happened here with Ed Lee and Shoda is we can separate the story from the dish. Did it taste good? Did Was it executed properly? Because Edward Lee, from that preamble, you might have thought, no matter what Shota puts on that plate and how it tastes and how it's executed, Edward Lee's going to have a soft spot for that dish. But the opposite happened, and they actually were able to grade the dish on its merit rather than be colored or brainwashed from the story. And so I thought Tom Colicchio was on point with that comment is they have shown time and time again on this show that they are able to separate the chef from the chef's food. And so – you know, maybe the biases pop in. I wouldn't go as strong as what Tom said and said there were no biases. They don't have biases when it comes to cooking. Like I think it's a little too strong to speak in absolutes there. But I do think it's really emblematic. What happened here with Edward Lee um, and Shoda is that the story can be amazing, but the food has to be good. 
It has to look good. It has to taste good. It has to be executed properly. Nobody complained about the taste. The rice was crunchy. It wasn't yeah, the, the rice. I mean, the rice is a travesty. Here's what I would say. <laughs> and by the way, because I am sensitive to narrative, and I think one of the reasons this show has soul is they're telling a personal story. Okay, let's do it this way. Why not a deconstructed curry? You know, you want to pay tribute to mom. You can do various. He's so creative and so gifted with presentation. Why not do a deconstructed curry or something that an elevated curry? I think he's one of those chefs who could do this is just elevate the simple, but don't put the simple on the plate. It's unbecoming in the finale. It, it just is. Anyway, I, I, I just, I, I'm sorely disappointed. I found it to be an interesting and very confusing choice and decision that he made. And it might very well have cost him the title of Top Chef. In contrast, let's talk about Don and Gabe's entree. They nailed it. Gabe comes in with this short rib dish with the mole, the I guess charred mushrooms. I think Tom might disagree with whether that was actual mushrooms. He thought it was overcooked. Yeah, one man's charred is another man's burn. I love a charred veggie, so I'm okay with that. So he did this is uh, chichilo negro mole, which looked like chocolate cake. When he presented that dish, it looked like something I'd order uh, at a fine dining restaurant, like a chocolate cheesecake or some mousse chocolate cake. But no, it's a it's a short rib with the with the mole. It looked so good. And man, this was Gabe on a plate. I mean, that was it. I mean, it was exactly what you were talking about at the front end is do something that you're good at, that speaks to who you are as a person and execute the heck out of it. And that's what he did with this short rib dish. It was beautiful. And and again, representative, right? I mean, he's been doing moles all season and here he really pulled out all the stops. He had the time, which is what mole requires to really do the deepest of the deep moles. And, and, you know, again, I, I think, I think Melissa said it very well. Clearly Gabe is taking us on a tour of Mexico. So there is story, there is narrative. You can do that without dumbing down your food. And this dish was, was sort of epitomized that. Uh, and, and it was a big win for him and it might've won him the competition. Uh, Dawn also turned in, just a beauty. I had her winning this round. I had it very, very close, but because of the mushrooms, I had Dawn as well. The jerk beef cheek with braised Oof. black-eyed peas and buttered turnips. I know you have a thing about turnips, Kevin, but man, this dish. You know what? I would eat Dawn's turnips. Dawn could turn me back <laughs> on turnips. The turnip turn. Indeed. I, you know, And by the way, black-eyed peas are one of those things where getting the texture perfect is harder than you would think. It really, because, you know, you don't want it too firm because you kind of lose that richness, but you don't want them mushy. Um, you want them to kind of get infused with the smoke if you're doing a ham, whatever it is that you're kind of using, um, you know, kind of as your fat. They're really hard to execute perfectly. And she executed them perfectly. I mean, listen, listening to Gail, um, you know, and, and again, I, I was like, look, if you can nail butter turnips, because I think turnip yeah i mean that, that that's achievement and what was beautiful about the beef cheek is one of the nice things about the amount of time they get is braises do take time it obviously served showed a well on his on his beef tongue and his curry which again i i you know i'm probably being too hard on it looked delicious but both dawn and Shoda benefited from that um 
you know, the time really allows you. The short rib too, Gabe. You know, all, it's not a coincidence that all three of these chefs, as their primary protein in the main dish, chose things that required time to really do tender. It's the one time I think in Top Chef that you get the you can do a five hour braise or whatever how long they did, and that, that's notable because you just don't get that much on Top Chef. It really prevents you from doing a lot of those dishes, and here they all took advantage of it. So on my scoring system here, Kevin, I've got Gabe out in front going into the final course. I've got Gabe out in front with five points, and this is like a golf score. You want the lower score. Five points. Don has six. Shota has seven. So Gabe has the runway here. He has He's turning the final turn at Churchill Downs, and he's ready to cross the finish line out in front. And Shota's got to make up a lot of ground here. He's got to have a knockout punch here to, to win over the top chef. Dawn, less so. Like she has to come out here with an amazing dish. But the other, the last two have been really strong. So I kind of feel like if she can nail the fourth course, she's going to be in a good position. But Gabe would have to fumble it here at the end. He has really not made any mistakes other than, you know, some of the mushrooms were, were, were overcharged. I mean, he, you know, um, and, and I guess you could argue that the, the pig head cheese was a little salty. Like they didn't nail kind of the texture um, when on the, kind of frying it in the masa. Um, but I, I think he is a, a slight favorite here. You know, the sad thing is, you know, it's funny when you, you kind of go back is, you know, if Dawn gets everything on the plate in that first course, I, I think she's right there. I mean, her only error is, hey, the seafood wasn't well integrated. But in terms of just sort of execution, she might have the best food uh, already in the, in the competition. It's, it's that fatal error of hers up top. Otherwise, I think I would have her neck and neck and maybe even ahead. I mean, it's just like she just got docked for that first date, which everyone loved, um, which is sad. So then we come to dessert. Um, I was always – I actually thought going in, Tom, that Shota might pull up. I don't do dessert. Mm. Japanese cooking doesn't emphasize dessert really. That said, he clearly is gifted in the <laughs> in the pastry arts because uh, he comes out with something that I would have ordered, which is oh, just the, yeah. the, the tea cheesecake with the cedar smoked gelato. Yeah, Tom, I can almost forgive him. Almost for almost the slop fest that was the curry. <laughs> almost, not quite. Gail's only complaint was that it might have been too smoky. But I am so, I'm so in love with any smoky anything. Like I am the guy who gets the peaty scotch or the any sort of, uh, like I'm that I'm that asshole who goes to the restaurant and they and you can do like the little bourbon that's like smoked in a like a bourbon cocktail old fashioned that's smoked in the, this glass orb like that's me that I want a smoky dish and so when she says eh, it might have been too overpowering no I'm I'm all down for the smoked gelato or smoked cheesecake dish um almost reeling back his his position on you know what he's been building up on this entire season the fourth course dessert was excellent for for Shoda um Gabe comes in holy shit with a candied squash that was an incredible pull for him to do the candied squash it seemed like if you're going to lose on top chef that might have been your downfall is doing a candied squash as your final dish on top chef. And yet, Kevin, he nailed it. Judges really honor risk 
in the finale. I mean, they generally honor risk, but here they particularly do. I mean, for you to basically go with a starch or a veggie, I mean, I mean, candied squash. It's just so beautiful. And also, by the way, I, I mean, I could get into some Mexican coffee ice cream. I don't know about you. Mm. There's actually um, my favorite creamery slash ice cream place in Los Angeles is called Wanderlust. And Wanderlust's whole theme is travel. So every flavor corresponds with a country. And they do have this um, Abuela Crunch, which is sort of a chocolate coffee, Mexican coffee, kind of with malt kind of malt crunch balls and uh, it is one of our favorites here and uh but but mexican chocolate ice cream with the candy squash it is such you know he at he not only does the risk thing which endears you to the chefs and, and obviously you have to execute it he also continues that tour of mexico that melissa identified as his through line and it's just something chefs chefs want coherence i mean it's not just four dishes it's four coherent dishes Don, you know, Don also was able to kind of create a through line. Um, You know, Shoda had Japanese cooking, but I I just don't think it was someone. It was Melissa who said it. Melissa was rough on him. But Melissa said it it looks like it came from two different restaurants. You know, he had uh, on one hand, it was sort of, you know, technically focused Japanese cuisine. Then it's sort of like home cuisine. And then, you know, it just it was all over the place. But uh, look, all three desserts look great. And it seemed to be I mean, I kind of had it as a tie. Other than if you want to give it to Gabe on sheer boldness. Yeah. But it looked like in terms of all three, I mean, Blaze was over the moon about Shota's dessert, which looked gorgeous. I mean, it was the prettiest of the three. I kind of had a trouble scoring this round, Tom. It could have been a tie. If I had to do a rank system here, it would be Gabe, then Shota, then Don. The only like critique was basically when Brooke said it was too basic for her measuring that against Shota's critique of having it being too smoky like this is nitpicking at this point so like you could I mean you could just make this a tie for the fourth course Um, but ultimately when looking at all four courses here they convened for what seemed to be a blink of an eye I think the judges convened and they knew as soon as it was over they didn't have much to discuss here Gabe you are top chef. Yeah! <laughs> a stunner for me because I traded that number one pick and, and Shota had come in with four wins. He had come in with a clear game plan and confidence and there was no injury to speak of or anything where you might be like, you know, I'm just a little worried for Shota here going into the final stretch that Gabe comes through with I do think that Maria, uh, middle Maria, as we love to call her, uh, she comes in and was as good of a Scotty Pippen as you could imagine for Gabe is just the clarity, the vision, all of that. The execution, Gabe seemed to be um, an an amazing showing for him in this Top Chef. And then Dawn, poor Dawn, just if she didn't have that mistake on the first dish – and I'm not saying this is a cumulative thing that they were judging her mistake on that first dish um, uh, as like, hey, this was something that she, a critical error that she's done throughout the season. But for me, the scoring goes Gabe, then Don, then Shota on this Top Chef finale. Yeah, and I think you hit on it, right? Clarity. There was a particular narrative he wanted to convey. There was a particular theme to the cooking 
there was an understanding of what his strengths as a chef were, and he was going to capitalize on those strengths. And again, he seemed to come in with the clearest plan. I don't think there's anything wrong with editing. And, but, but, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting that, you know, Shota's big edit, the second dish, right? I'm rather than going to focus on the proteins, I'm going to make it kind of a, a veggie dish, really did him in, right? It's not an argument against editing. And clearly Dawn's editing works in her favor often. You know, we, we've been hard on her about time management, but I think it's important to note, and, and I don't, I'm very much a planner and I know where I'm going on vacation three summers from now. And, I, and so I, I'm, I by no means live the way Dawn lives. But I also want to recognize that many of the things that drive us crazy about her lack of time management are also instincts that allow her to be so inspired. You know, it, it's, it's a trade-off. And, you know, she makes so many brilliant strokes over the course of preparing a meal. And I think it does come from a mindset where, hey, I'm not going to tie myself to any particular outcome because as I progress through the kitchen and through the cook, I'm going to find, I'm going to think of things that are going to be additives and, and, and real, you know, lovely accompaniments. And she seems to do that. And so, you know, it's hard because I think life is beautiful that way, which is your strength also is your weakness, right? I mean, the things that drive you to success can ultimately undo you. Um, but Gabe mitigated against that, should have fell victim to it. Obviously, Dawn's kind of fatal flaw did her in. And, and I do think had she gotten that stuff on the plate, we might even be having a different conversation because she didn't screw up pretty much anything else. Um, but, you know, congratulations to Gabe. Shota will still go down as one of my all-time favorite chefs. Um, I, as disappointed as I am, loved him this season, loved his cooking, inspired me. Um, I mean, I literally been in the kitchen doing a couple of his videos off Instagram cooking. So, you know, bravo to him. And uh, an interesting season, Tom. I mean, what do you make? I mean, kind of go looking down from 30,000 feet when you and I talk about season 18 in the Portland season five years from now, what, what are we going to remember? What was notable? I think it's got to be the Top Chef alumni being as integrated into the show as we've ever seen. Gregory Gorday, Dale Talday, Richard Blaze, Melissa King. As much as we love Tom Gale and Padma, I kind of feel like they were as good, if not better, in their judging and personality on this show. So whatever Magical Elves did or the show did to kind of bring that out of them and the confidence and the the energy that they brought. I mean, I think of Amar licking the plate and how delightful he was this season and Carrie um, and, and Nina's moment there with Dawn. We don't get that in past seasons. We don't. And so uh, Tom Colicchio brought this up in the interview. Again, Vince Mancini over at Uproxx. He said, maybe in years past, we don't see the Dawn mistakes because she's only preparing three dishes for the judges and maybe all three ele- or all the elements come onto the plate for the judges. Whereas in this season, there's like eight judges, right? It's the panel of judges. So she has to get all the elements for those eight dishes. And so what he said was in the past, because the alumni are there, there's a lot more mistakes that can be had in terms of the plating getting all the elements on the dish. He said, it happens all the time, is that when they go to like an event where there's like hundreds of people, 
a lot of times the judges get like three dishes, but the rest hundred or so dishes are missing an element because the chef lot, you know, forgot to put it on or didn't have time, but you don't get to see that because of the editing and because it's just not included on the show. So this season to me was such a huge success given the obstacles thrown their way with COVID and the fires I think about the indigenous uh, people's episode where they went out and and and, and went to that, that that river and caught their own food. I think about um, just the camaraderie that they showed on this season. I felt like Last Chance Kitchen was amazing. Um, but Kevin, I want to I want to summarize or just kind of point to the fact that when we did our draft several months ago, after watching one episode of season eighteen. Do you remember who our top three picks were? Yeah, it was Shota, Gabe, and... Dawn. Oh, you had Dawn third? I picked Dawn third. No kidding. And so I traded her like two weeks in after I, I picked her third and then traded her. But we had the finalists on number one, number two, and number three in our draft. Sarah was number four. So, Kevin... We've been bad at drafting in the past. We've been terrible. (laughs) But this season, one of my takeaways is we had a really good eye for talent in that first episode. We went Shoda, Gabe, and Dawn, and then Sarah, which Sarah winning the first episode. um, And if she's stuck around in the competition, she might have well won this whole thing. But man, we did okay, Kevin. We did pretty good on the draft this year. We did okay. You know, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, Sarah fourth, Gabriel fifth. Nelson, Chris, Kiki, Maria. Yeah, We had Nelson a little high. Nelson was really the only, I mean, because by and large, it, it, it's still like the correlation. You can run the numbers, but we were probably really strong. On this note, Kevin, you still won. Congratulations, Kevin. Oh, I, I, so I officially – the, the, the returns are in. This is not the New York City mayor's race like we, we, we know. <laughs> yeah. The returns are in, Kevin, and there is no ranked choice here. So we're, we're, it's pretty easy to see the scoring system this year. You win 179 to 163 Shota's blunder in the finale did not do you in Gabe gets 25 points if he got originally we had in our scoring system that he would win 50 points the the finale winner would get 50 points in the old scoring system I might won everything but um you actually take home the season what four is it four we've done four of these things yeah this is our fourth god has it been four Yeah, season four of Pack Your Knives, you have won, officially won the fantasy team. Thanks to Shota and Dawn. Uh, Congratulations, Kevin. I want to say I'm not happy about the outcome here, and I'm going to take back my my crown next year, for sure. You likely will. I I, I seem to have a real talent at not winning. (laughs) And actually, you could say the Dawn trade, I think, got me the win. It was, for sure. I mean, that was the margin. Um, by the way, I'm glad we brought it down to 25 points because then it's like, why even have the week to week? Because the 50 just gets you, generally pushes you over. This was a lot of fun. You have like a where are they now for the three finalists? Yep. So where are they now? Because you might want to go to eat their restaurants now. Things are opening back up. Um, Shoda has reopened Taku, uh, which was his Japanese street food, Osaka style street food restaurant in Seattle. Uh, he opened that back up in May. Uh, so Taku is open. Gabe, he was let go from his restaurant Commodore 
in December, so shortly after the show shot, he was let go from Commodore and the owner or chef had said that it was due to misconduct. I don't know what happened there, um, but we'll follow that and see what comes out of that. Um, Don comes in with a late August restaurant in Houston. It's called Late August in Houston, in Midtown Houston, focusing on Afro-Asian cuisine. Kevin, I, I really hope that the Houston Rockets get to be better soon because it doesn't seem like we're going to be in, in covering the Rockets anytime soon in, in the nat, in the playoffs. But hey, we said that about the Phoenix Suns recently and look at them. So Dawn has, uh, has her new restaurant late August in Houston, in Midtown Houston, in the Ion Building. Kevin, do you know what I'm talking about here in Houston? Which is the Ion Building? I've had so many good meals in Houston. By the way, Houston, Texas, Tom. Lord, is that a good food city? Yeah. Oh, Ion, is that the one with the cool um, food court that I like? It might be. Oh, yeah. I think that might be the one. There were, there's like this really cool – that is a great sushi restaurant actually. I think if, if this is the one I think I'm talking about, that you're talking about, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the eye. It's like kind of a, a very new kind of space, like cooperatives and stuff. Like It, it, it looks very cool. So I got to get Dawn's food largely again because, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think either of us are going to get there for NBA reasons anytime <laughs> soon. But, but Houston is just – I think it's the biggest sleeper food city in the country. You know, Philly used to be and now the word's out. But Houston is, is just doing amazing stuff. Before we go, I want to mention Top Chef Amateurs was a delight. Gail as the host, we talked about it with our interview with Gail, Kevin – Last night, they, they showed the two episodes, one of them, uh, Eric Adjapong and Joe Flam being the judges, Melissa King and Richard Blaze being like the sous chefs for a Top Chef Amateur. I think the show is amazing. I think it's great. We won't be doing recaps of it on this on this podcast. I don't think we have uh, the bandwidth to be doing those recaps right now. But I do think that Top Chef Amateur, if for our listeners – you should definitely check that out. It debuted, it premiered after last night's episode. And I think it's a, of all of the spinoffs of Top Chef, this one has to be in your repertoire. It is such a good show. And for so many of the things you love about Top Chef, right? Like they do a great job bringing back the alums who kind of operate as the sous chefs. There's a wonderful wish fulfillment element. I mean, as someone who, you know, we, we joke like, Early in the season, when there are a lot of clunkers, you always say, hey, you know, Kevin, could you have won that one? Anyone who has any aspiration to cook good stuff, it's a great – you can really live vicariously through these – through the amateur chefs because they are regular folks. Like they're people with jobs and um, – but also real ambition and aspirations. And it's just – it also just – look, I think it's fun to watch the competition. I mean there's, there's something exhilarating about people up against a clock having to prepare food. Um, for really some, some of the biggest culinary geniuses around. So it's like it, it captures so much of what we all love about Top Chef. And so it's a great – also, I got to say, like for those who want like a quick you know 22-minute or 30 minutes if you're watching with commercials, it's a really quick kind of you know microdose of Top Chef. You know, yes. you can get in and out and it's just – it's fun. And uh, I and Gail, I mean, just we'll be waiting a little showcasing Gail, which which is lovely as well, and the and all the old chefs. So, um, yeah, definitely check out Top Chef Amateurs. It's a great deal of fun. Um, tight as a show, just you, you can get in and out. It's wonderful, and it, it captures all the things we love. Yeah, check it out. It's on Bravo this season, hosted by by Gail. Um, I believe on Thursdays. It's a great show, Kevin. 
We just wrapped up season 18 of Top Chef. It was a joy. I didn't know what to expect from the pandemic season of Top Chef, but I thought they just did an amazing job dealing with the circumstances. Uh, Shout out to uh, Magical Elves. Shout out to the Bravo team. And thank you, Gail, for joining the show this season and our previous guests on the show. It was really fun to have you on. And thanks for our listeners for for listening and and sticking with us. I mean, this is this is one of the highlights of my week. Every week we do this show, Kevin. So despite you winning this year's fantasy season, I still love doing this, Kevin. And there will be a season 19. I personally am rooting for Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which is long overdue to be the site of a top chef. And by the way, like has more film production now than anybody. And like it, the infrastructure is there to, to do a show. So uh, I am, I am, I'm imploring and, and begging and, and all that to, the good folks at Elves and, you know, Bravo, NBCU, like Atlanta, Georgia, Let's great food scene, would be a home game for me. But you'd have to invite my mom to some of those events because she would be really disappointed if Top Chef came and I couldn't get her like into one of those little, I don't know, food trucks. And she's a little bit of a fussy eater. So that's the one thing is, you know, you can't put sauce on anything. Um, in fact, there should be an Ellen challenge. There should be a challenge to cook for like the Jewish ladies of Atlanta and you can't put any dressing, everything has to be on the side and and like no butter, don't cook with butter. But that would be a really fun challenge. And I hope Atlanta gets it. That would be there. They're long overdue. Look, not only are you going to bring on Kevin and I as, as judges for Top Chef Atlanta, but you have it all mapped out. All the challenges, we can do that for you right here on, on Pack Your Knife. Just include us in all of those brainstorms. We basically can do Top Chef Kevin, right? We can basically run the show. I'm ready to be. Uh, producer yeah and uh, like so when i move on from sports writing i mean this is another appeal like yeah I, w- I would love to be a producer on top chef for a season at least like that would be a blast tom closing thoughts on top of our closing thoughts i love you maria she was great on this episode too i don't think i mentioned it she's a habitual crier emotional person and i love every second of it we got to get her on the show at some point because i think she's just amazing i don't know who the fan favorite is i don't know if that vote has gotten out yet chef jamie might be my vote because i think of all of the chefs that we've seen this season she might have been the most unique one that we have ever seen and if i look back on this season at, at one personality that that stuck out more than anybody. It's got to be Jamie, not just because she was amazing at, at at cooking and she was there in the finale and right there with Dawn. Oh, it seems like the final two were Dawn and Shota. Oh, I don't know if anybody. I'm just I'm just reading here from. Okay, uh, I don't know if it was announced yet. Oh, looks like Shota. Wow! Congratulations on this year's Shota. He will win $10,000 furnished by San Pellegrino, sparkling natural mineral water. By the way, I had Pellegrino last night. It was brought. (laughs) Congrats to Shota. I'm a shill for the show in every conceivable way. I even shill for the sponsors. Though I didn't purchase it myself. It was was, uh, brought to my house. Shota is the fan favorite. And by the way, he was my fan favorite. I got to say, you know, have a little crush on Shota hope to eat at his fine establishments in Seattle, Washington very soon. That would be fun. Take us out, Kevin. For Tom Aberstrow, this is Kevin Ornovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives.
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.